Well, as I've told you thus far, Psalm 145 is a beautiful psalm. It is Hebrew poetry, and there's a poetic element used in this psalm called an acrostic. And what the writer of Psalm 145 did, David, who wrote a lot of the psalms, is he used successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet to start each stanza. So the first stanza begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, and the next stanza starts with the Hebrew letter Beit and Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion, and it goes down through the different letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And you can't see that in your English translations, but if you're reading this in Hebrew, you'd be able to see how, how beautiful it is and how it's all laid out and organized. And so it's, it's poetry and it's Powerful poetry because it's all about the Lord. And I believe the main point of this psalm is found in verse 3. Look what it says there in verse 3. Great is the Lord. That's why we're calling this study, How Great Is Our God. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, His greatness is unsearchable. I believe that's the, the thesis of this psalm. That's what the psalm's about. David wants us to comprehend to ponder together the greatness of God, His being, His attributes, who He is, what He does. And I think it's important that we do that. Let me read you this quote from A.W. Tozer. It's a convicting quote. He had a way with words, and he talked about the study of God. Here's what he wrote. It is not a cheerful thought that millions of us who live in a land of Bibles, who belong to churches and labor to promote the Christian religion, may yet pass our whole life on this earth without once having thought or tried to think seriously about the being of God. Read that again. It is not a cheerful thought that millions of us who live in a land of Bibles, who belong to churches and labor to promote the Christian religion, may yet pass our whole life on this earth without once having thought or tried to think of seriously of the being of God. And so, they're saying, you know, we're surrounded by Bibles, and yet we go through life just being mesmerized by the trivial and not giving God the focus and attention that He deserves and thinking deeply on Him and worshiping Him in response to who He is. And so this study is designed just to help us to see God more clearly and, and, and cause us to stand back and say, how great is our God? And we're looking through this psalm at the different attributes of God. We've already talked about the transcendence and eminence of God. If you are here a couple of weeks ago, that God is above the created order. He's, he's far above us, and yet He chooses in His grace to draw near to us. That's transcendence is He's above us. Eminence is He's beside us. And He, he could just say distant, couldn't He? But He loves us us and chooses to draw near to us. We talked about that. And then last week we talked about the power of God, the omnipotence of God, how powerful he is and the implications for our lives. But tonight we're going to talk about the goodness of God, the goodness of God. Now, we, we say things or sing things that speak of his goodness all the time. Uh, we learn early on in childhood to sing a song like this before we eat. God is great. God is Good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands we are fed. You know that, that song, one of the first little prayers we learn growing up. God is great. God is good. And it's good that we're saying God is great and God is good. But we, we say that in a, in a rote way and we don't really think about what it means that God is good. My church growing up, it was our tradition at the end of the service. Our, the pastor would say, God is good. And the, the congregation would say, all the time. And then he'd say, all the time. And the congregation would say, God is good. And I like that. That's a great way to remind us of the goodness of God. But what does it mean that God is good? Or or more specifically, what does it mean for your day-to-day life 
that God is good? What does it mean for your family that God is good? What does it mean for your society that God is good? What does it mean for your church that God is good? So we're going to dig tonight, and we're going to say, wait, how much can we say about God being good? I mean, God is good. Isn't that all we have to say? Well, there's a lot to say about the goodness of God. So we're going to go deep tonight and uh, enjoy our time. Uh, We're going to start with Psalm 145. Psalm 145, verse 7. We've studied verses 1 through 6. In verse 7 it says, They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfastest love. The Lord is, there's that word, good to all. And His mercy is over all that He has made. So notice there in verse 7 it says, They shall pour forth the fame. They shall speak of the greatness, the fame of your abundant goodness. That word abundant means overflowing. So he says, your people will will sing forth. They will praise your overflowing goodness. And then in verse 9, the Lord is good to all. And so clearly the goodness of God is one of the attributes that is described or praised in this chapter. So let's talk about the goodness of God. And just kind of be real honest with you, it's been a, a tough week this week, tough, or a little tough couple of weeks, and a lot going on, and just busy, and all kinds of stuff happening, and, and it was just really good for me this week to study the goodness of God, to remember in all the frantic activity, and all that's happening, to remember that God is good, and so hopefully it'll be a blessing to you as well. And what I want to do is I want to discuss the goodness of God under two headings. First, I want to share with you the goodness of God defined. The goodness of God defined. I want to talk to you about what it actually means when we say God is good or we speak of the goodness of God. I've given you a definition there. It comes from Wayne Grudem, who's a uh, well-known theologian. He wrote a book called Systematic Theology, among other books. Very uh, concise, clear writer. I appreciate his writings. And here's what he says about the goodness of God. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good. So whatever good is, it's it's got to relate to God because God is good. He's the final standard of good. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all, everyone say all, all that God is and does is worthy of approval. I'll say it again. All that God is and does is worthy of approval. Who he is, we should approve and praise. And what he does, we should approve of and praise because who he is is good. What he does is good. Everything's good. And so everything he does, all that he is, all that he does is worthy of approval. Now, I want to just kind of give you some thoughts related to that definition that help us to kind of grasp this a little bit better. First of all, God is intrinsically good. Intrinsically good. I-N-T-R-I-N. S-I-C-A-L-L-Y. I-N-T-R-I-N-S-I-C-A-L-L-Y. God is intrinsically good. The word intrinsic means uh, possessing. And, and so when we say God is intrinsically good, it means he possesses goodness. That's, that's what the, the word basically means. And, and Thomas Manton, a writer of old, says this about the intrinsic goodness of God. Uh, He is originally good, good of himself, with nothing else. For all creatures are good only by participation and communication from God. He is essentially good, not only good, but goodness itself. The creature's good is a a super-added quality. In it, in God, it is 
his essence. He is infinitely good. The creature's good is but a drop, but in God there is an infinite ocean or gathering together of good. He is eternally and immutably good, for he cannot be less good than he is, as there can be no addition made to him, so no subtraction from him. In other words, God is not striving for goodness. God is goodness. It's just who he is. It's just part of the, the character that he possesses. It's like me saying, I have blue eyes. I, I don't strive to have blue eyes. Uh, nothing's going to change the fact that I have blue eyes. I have blue eyes. It's just they're intrinsic to who I am. And God's goodness is intrinsic to who he is. He's not growing in goodness. He is all goodness. He's not grasping for goodness. He possesses perfect, full goodness. And so God's goodness is intrinsic. It's just who he is, all right? He's not trying to grow in goodness. He is goodness in and of himself. So God is intrinsically good. It says that in Psalm 145, verse 7. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. So notice the word your and then abundant goodness. Who does the abundant goodness belong to? It's God's. It's his. Your abundant goodness. It is, it is intrinsic. God is intrinsically good. Secondly... As we think about the goodness of God, God is the source of all good. This is important. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. God is the source of all good. Turn over to James chapter 1, New Testament book of James. Hold your place in Psalm 145. We'll be back there. But look in James chapter 1 with me. I love this verse. James 1 verse 17 James writes here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, every good gift, so if there's anything good, every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? Above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so James says here that if there's anything good in our life, it's due to our unchanging God who is in and of himself good. And so if there's anything good that's ever happened to you or in you or for you, you can trace it all the way back to God because God is the source of all good. So let me explain to you how that works. God's goodness is seen in two ways. The first is common grace. Common grace. And by common grace, I mean God's goodness that is for everyone. God's goodness is for everyone. For example, turn back over to Psalm 145. I want to walk you through a few verses here. Psalm 145. Just put your thank you caps on for a minute because this is important. But Psalm 145 verse 9. David writes, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy, an extension of His goodness, is over all that he has made. Everybody see that? So there's goodness over all the created order. There are, everyone in creation are recipients of some measure of God's goodness. That means people that are believers in Christ who know God as Father and those who are pagans and have turned their back to God and have rejected God. Still, both groups experience some measure of God's goodness in this world. Uh, Turn with me to, to... Uh, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at the words of Jesus where he speaks of this common grace. Matthew 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus says here, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus is speaking of common grace, that, that there are those who are evil, but guess what? They still receive the benefit of the sun when it comes up in the morning. And there are those that are evil, and they still receive the benefit of rain falling on their crops, just like the righteous do. And so we see here God's goodness for those that are His, those that are His children, and those who are not His children. God's, God's common grace is for all people on this earth. And to kind of drive that point home just a little bit further, look over in Acts chapter 14. Acts 14. Acts 14, I was in Acts 15, I said, that's not the right verse. Acts uh, chapter 14, verse 16. This is Paul and Barnabas speaking in Lystra. And Paul says, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. People that had rejected him, the nations had rejected him. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. In other words, even when your forefathers rejected God and were worshiping pagan gods, God showed his goodness in blessing you with food to eat and fruitful seasons in the life of your nation. And it says here, it was a witness. Hey, you should be glad that you have food to eat. It's a witness of God's goodness to you and should, should, should cause you to want to find the one who gave you that goodness. That's, that's what he's saying here. And so he's speaking here of common grace. Rain falls on those that are unrighteous and in those who are righteous. The sun rises on those who are unrighteous and those who are righteous. So God's common grace, good, is seen in, in that it is poured out on all humanity in some measure. Everybody got that? Okay, And so there are people that are enemies of the cross, enemies of God, pagan idolaters, and guess what? Their heart just beat last second. And they just drew a breath. That's God's goodness. Matter of fact, every second someone is not flung into hell is God's goodness. Because God is so holy that when we sin the first time, He could fling us into hell justly, couldn't He? And so every moment that God gives us is an act of His goodness. Not just for the righteous, but the righteous. So that's common grace. But there's also special grace. Special grace. And special grace is His grace for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. They experience things that no one else on earth experiences. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Love this verse. Ephesians 1 verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. So the blessings here for those who are in Christ, those who are saved. That's what it means to be in Christ. It means you've placed your faith in Him as your, as your Lord and Savior. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then the rest of Ephesians 1 deals with those spiritual blessings. Adoption and redemption and forgiveness and the sealing of the Spirit and all the things that are ours in Christ. And all of those spiritual blessings are only for those that are saved. 
only for those that know Jesus Christ in a personal way. That's special grace. So there are people on this earth that are Christians that experience God's goodness in a way that no one else does. His goodness in these spiritual blessings through Christ are only for a select group of people, but it's available to anyone who places their faith in Christ. It's not like, hey, here are your blessings, no one else gets in. It's like, hey, if you want in on it, believe in Christ, and you can get in on it, right? There's a big difference there. And so God is the source of common grace and special grace. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, says it like this. God is good to all in some ways, and good to some in all ways. Say it again. God is good to all in some ways. Rain on the righteous, sun rises. Rain on the unrighteous, sun rises on the unrighteous. But he's good to some Christians, those who are in Christ, in all ways. So if you are a believer in Christ, you experience the full measure of God's goodness. And by the way, who wouldn't want to experience the full measure of God's goodness? If you want all of his goodness poured out upon you, just follow Jesus. Because if you do that, you are in on the full measure of his goodness for your life. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? And so, God is the source of all good. And this is humbling. It really is. This is a humbling idea. Because, listen to me, if there's anything good in your life, it all can be attributed to God's goodness in your life. We can't really take credit for anything we want to, don't we? You know, what a good job I did parenting, or what a, what a, what a good husband I am, or what a good spouse I am, or, or, you know, how good of an employee I am, or, you know, how well I've taken care of my money, or how good of a church member I am. And, and, and we want to, we you know, take the credit for good things in our life. But the Bible says every, every good and perfect gift is from where? Above. So if there's anything good, you know what you can say? To God be the glory. Great things He has done, Right? Anything good, any blessing, all is attributed to God. And so God is the source of all good. And he's glorified when we recognize he's the source of all good. And he's dishonored when we don't recognize he's the source of all good. And we think that we're good, it's, it's, it's all about us, uh, then he's dishonored. You know, well, hey, wait, you, you know, I, I know God's good, but, you know, I earn my paycheck. I show up and I put in a hard day's work and I've been with that company for so many years and, and I work harder than other folks and I earn my pay, I earn my benefits. I've done that, Wade. Well, who kept your heart beating the entire time? Right? Who made your lungs? Who gave you a mind to be able to understand what you're doing at work? Who created you and gave you that brain, right? And so we can't take credit for anything. To God be the glory Great things he has done. There's really, you know, for someone that believes the Bible, there really is no room for pride in our lives. There really is. And I don't know why we struggle with pride like we do. We all do. But there really is no room for pride. Because God, listen, God is the source of all good for the righteous and the unrighteous. All right? Now, another thought about God's goodness is we're defining it here. Everything, everything God does is good. Over in Psalm 119, verse 68, the Bible says, just a really short verse, God is good and he does good. Pretty simple, isn't it? God is good and he does good. So not only is he good intrinsically in his nature, but because he's good intrinsically, what he does is in accordance with that nature. What he does is good. So anything God, anytime God acts, listen to me, anytime God acts, it's good. 
Even if we don't understand it. We'll talk some more about this later. But even if we don't understand what he's doing, it's good because God is good. He cannot, he cannot deny himself, it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He can't deny his own nature. And so anything that he does is good. Everything God does is good. Even when you go through something painful. Did you know that, that sometimes when you go through something painful as a believer, it's God disciplining you? Do you know that? Sometimes God will allow hard things into our life or cause hard things into our life to get our attention. Did you know that? And even those hard things that really hurt are good. For example, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. New Testament, book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Look in uh, verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. So he's saying if you're going through something difficult in your life, it could be that God, your father, is disciplining you just like an earthly father disciplines a son because he wants to get your attention so you'll stop doing the wrong thing and start doing the right thing. And look how he expands the metaphor here. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for our what? Good. That tells me, even if God allows something painful in your life, It's a reflection of his goodness because it's meant for your good. So wait, what about trials that aren't disciplined? What about just hard things we go through because, you know, life is hard and we deal with, you know, fallen humanity and we go through difficult things and we're walking with God and we're we're serving him and and something hard happens. It's not discipline. It's just living in in a fallen world. What about that? Well, James 1 says, rejoice when you encounter various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so if God allows hardship into your life, listen to me, look at me, he's building your character. So it's, it's hard, but it's good. God is doing it because God is good. Everything that happens in our life, everything that God does is good. A.W. Pink says it like this, All that emanates, all that comes from God, His decrees, His creation, His laws, His providences cannot be otherwise than good because God would be denying Himself. Everything God does is good. So hopefully I've helped you to think about the goodness of God, what it it means. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good, that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. Everybody everybody got that? Say amen if you got that. Now, we're going to go to the next thing, and this is going to be really important. We're going to talk about the implications of God's goodness for our lives. So I just shared with you a lot of stuff. But what does that mean, Wade, for day-to-day living? All right, how should that affect me as a, as a person, as a follower of Christ? What are the implications of God's goodness for our lives? Well, God is good, and this means at least six things for us. Number one, this should fill us with gratitude. You can turn with me to Psalm 100. I'm going to show you several quick verses from the Psalms here. Psalm 100. Verse 
Look in verse 4. Psalm 100, verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. So we're called here to be people of gratitude, to give God thanksgiving. Why? Verse 5. For. Here's the answer to that question. Why should we praise God? Why should we thank him? For the Lord is what? Good. And so the fact that God is good should lead us to thank him. Look over with me in Psalm 106, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Here it is again. For he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Look in Psalm 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. For he is what? Good. His steadfast love endures forever. And so all through the Bible, we are called to be people of gratitude in light of the goodness of God. I think that's why Paul says over in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17, he says, he said, In all circumstances, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. Because you know that it is a reflection of God's goodness in your life. And so the fact that God is good should fill us with gratitude. I want to encourage you, just in your day-to-day living, I want to encourage you just to to spend some more time just thanking God for His goodness. Just all the good you see in you and around you, and all the good He's done for you, and the good He has for you for you in the future. Just spend some time just thanking Him for the fact that He is good. I'm telling you, it will really change your perspective in the way that you view life. So God is good. This should fill us with gratitude. Gratitude should be more than one day a year. Amen? When you're distracted by turkey and dressing. Gratitude should be a lifestyle. Why? Because God is good on every day, not just on Thanksgiving Day, right? God's good every day, and we should be people of gratitude. Secondly, God is good. This should motivate us to pray. This should motivate us to pray. The fact that God is good should be a major motivating factor in your life and my life to really go to God and pray. Look over in Matthew chapter 7. This is really good stuff. Matthew chapter 7. And again, we're going to see the metaphor of a father and his child related to God being our father. And Look what it says in... Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. I'm in Mark chapter 7. All right, now, okay, right place. Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. You want to know what kind of nightmares preachers have? One of my recurring nightmares is that I'm standing up in front of everyone and I tell everyone to turn to a Bible verse and everyone finds it and I can't find it in my Bible. And I'm just looking, looking, you know, something like Zechariah or something. Everyone's found Zechariah except me. And everyone's wondering, does Wade know his Bible? And so that's just a recurring thing that and I just have to deal with that. So pray for me. But look, Matthew chapter 7, look what it says in verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be open. Or which one of you, talking about earthly fathers here, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? The answer is, even though we are imperfect fathers, any father with a modicum of decency, if his son come and asks him for bread, will try to get him something to eat. He won't give him a stone, which is inedible. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If, you're, if, if, if your 
child comes and asks you for a, a fish to eat, what kind of father, with a modicum of decency, would give them a deadly serpent in, the, in its place? The answer is, no one. If you then, who are evil, compared to God, we are, we are, we are so imperfect, right? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, watch this, I love this, how much more? Let's say those three words together. How much more? Say it again. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give, here it is, good, good things to those who ask him? Isn't that good? In other words, if you ask God for things, he's going to answer your request with something good. May not be on your timetable, may not be exactly how you want it to come to fruition, may not be exactly what you asked for, but God is good, and he's going to answer your prayer in a way that is ultimately best for you. Isn't that awesome? That's the confidence we have. No matter what you ask him, he's going to somehow answer it for your ultimate good. And that's incredible. And I tell you, the Lord's been working my prayer life lately. I heard a quote from Adrian Rogers uh, about a month ago, and it's really changed the way I pray. And here's what he said. I think I've shared this with you not too long ago. But he said, you know, the devil can't stop God from answering your prayers, so he's going to try to stop you from asking. Think about that. Devil, God's going to answer, right? The devil can't stop that. But the devil can distract us, can't he, from asking for good things, for God to work in our lives and other people's lives and move in our world. And so the devil loves to keep us prayerless. He loves to, to cause us to be so distracted by life that we never go to our good father and ask him for things, knowing we will receive good things from him. I believe that prayerlessness is one of Satan's primary strategies to destroy families and destroy churches. If he can just keep us from praying, then he didn't have to worry about those good things coming to us through the avenue of prayer. And so this fact, the fact that God is good, He's our Father, and He'll give good things to us when we pray should really motivate us to pray. And so I've been asking, I'm just being honest with you and transparent, I've been asking God for some really specific things lately. And I've seen God answer some prayers in my life in, in some really dramatic ways this past month. It's been pretty awesome, and I could share some stories with you, but I, I'm just telling you, I asked for not just general kind of, but some very specific things. So when God comes through and answers it, there's no question, it was God answering my prayer. I just want to encourage you, God is good. Start asking him for stuff. I'm not talking about material. I'm, I'm saying ask him for, to work in your life in certain ways and work in your family and work in your church in some way, work in our nation, our world, asking to meet a certain need in your life, bring that need to him and get specific about it. God, here's the need. I'm laying it before you. Would you meet this need in my life? Would you help me out here? I mean, be specific. And you'll be amazed at the specificity with which God will answer your specific prayers because he's good. He's good, right? And the devil can't stop him from answering. He's going to try to keep you from asking. And so, an implication of God's goodness for our lives is we should be motivated to pray. My kids, and I'm not the perfect father, but my kids aren't afraid to come ask me for stuff. They ask me for stuff all the time, right? All the time. And, and there's just no fear there because they know that ultimately I have their best interests at heart. So they ask me for stuff all the time. Even stuff they know I'm not going to give them. They ask me, ask me, ask me, ask me. And, and I think that's a picture, uh, just a slight picture, but a picture of what God wants from us. He wants us to come to him as our father and ask him to meet our needs, knowing that he is good. 
He is good. Now here's the next implication of God's goodness for our lives. Lives. This fact that God is good should affect the way we view circumstances and help us to trust Him. The fact that God is good should affect the way we view circumstances and should help us to trust Him. Many people, because they're not grounded in their faith or grounded in the Word of God, they, they go through something difficult and they think one of two things. God... Either, number one, God is not good, ultimately. If he was good, this wouldn't be happening in my life. Or, God doesn't care about me. Or God's mad at me, or God's angry at me, or whatever the case may be. And a lot of people draw conclusions, listen to me, about the character of God based upon their present circumstances. And that's dangerous. That's really dangerous. Because, did you know that God is at work, in your life, even through difficult circumstances. Sometimes he, he's more at work in the difficulty than he is in the peaceful, serene days of your life. For example, you know the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter, uh, well, starts in what, Genesis 37 and goes through the end of the, of the book. But in Genesis, the story of, of Joseph, he's, he's uh, sold into slavery by his brothers because they're jealous. His dad made him a coat of many colors and, favor, and showed favoritism towards Joseph. So his brothers were jealous, wanted to kill him, but instead of killing him, they just sold him to a band of, of traders coming through. And the, the, the traders took him to Egypt, sold him into slavery. He was the uh, household servant over all of Potiphar's household. Potiphar was the captain of Pharaoh's guard, a very prominent man in Egypt, and God blessed Joseph and gave him favor, so everything in Potiphar's household was, was just being blessed by God as Joseph was overseeing the household. But then Potiphar's wife uh, had designs on Joseph and made advances at Joseph, and Joseph refused her advances because he says, I don't want to sin against God. You're a married woman. Don't want to sin against God, and refused her advances. So she got angry and lied about him and said that he made advances on her. So he was thrown into jail. So here's Joseph, right? He's been sold into slavery by his brothers. He's been lied about by this Egyptian woman, and now he's in a dungeon. Now, if he was interpreting God by those circumstances, he would, he would probably have said, God is not good. If God were good and God were fair and God were just and God was watching what was going on, I wouldn't be in this dungeon. Right? If he was interpreting God by the circumstances. But see, we have the benefit of the big picture. We see what God was doing in Genesis. Because... Joseph interprets some dreams for a man in, in jail. The man gets out and eventually tells Pharaoh, when Pharaoh has a dream that no one can interpret, that there's a man in jail that can interpret your dreams. He says, bring him here. Joseph comes in, tells him what his dreams mean. They speak of seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And, and Joseph explains that's what the dreams of Pharaoh mean. And Pharaoh says, well, since you interpret my dream, I'm putting you in charge. You're going to lead the, the effort to store up plenty of grain during the seven years of famine so we have enough to live on during the, I mean, seven years of plenty so we have enough to live on during the seven years of famine. And he made Joseph the second most powerful man in the world. The second most powerful man in Egypt, the greatest kingdom at that time. He said, what is, what, why did God do that? Well, when the famine hit, guess what? It also hit Joseph's family. And they needed some grain. So guess what? They came looking for grain, and Joseph was able to care for his family and preserve his family, which was the Jewish people, which through, who came, who, through whom came the Messiah. And, and Joseph was able to preserve his family because he went through all of those difficult circumstances, and God put him in that place of authority in Egypt. 
And so, is God good? Yes. Did, did God stop being good when Joseph was in prison? No, God was working in his life to do something to save his family ultimately, right? And Joseph got that because in, jo- in Genesis chapter 50, when he's talking to his brothers, their dad Jacob dies, and his brothers come to Joseph, who's still powerful in Egypt, and they say, listen, Joseph, we know now that dad's dead, you're going to get us. Now that dad's dead, you don't have to, you know, Keep your hands off of, us, off of us because respect to him. Now that dad's dead, we know you're going to just get us. And Joseph said to his brothers, listen, what you did, you meant it for evil. The devil meant it for evil, he says. But God meant it for, listen, good. Hear that? What the devil meant for evil, slavery, prison, all of that. God meant for what? Good. So be very careful about interpreting your circumstances as some sort of defect in God's character. Because even when you're going through difficulty, the Bible says if you're his child, God is ultimately using it for good. Romans 8, 28. God works everything together for the good of those that love him, to those called according to his purpose. And so when you go through something hard, don't, don't say, well, God doesn't love me or God's forgotten about me or, or God's not good. Say, you know what? God is at work. I can't see it, but I'm not going to let it deter me from knowing that God is good. Don't interpret the character of God through your circumstances. That's a dangerous game to play and an unbiblical game to play. So the fact that God is good should affect the way we view circumstances and help us to trust him. Even when we're going through something difficult, we trust him. A.W. Pink says this, The goodness of God is the life of the believer's trust. It is this excellency in God which most appeals to our hearts. Because His goodness endureth forever, we ought never to be discouraged. Let me say it again, I don't think you heard that. Because His goodness endures forever, we ought never to be discouraged. Amen? Never! Because, listen, no matter how hard life is, He's not stopped being good. You, you may not see it, but he's good. And you just keep trusting him. And one day, you'll understand it all better by and by. But understand that no matter what you're going through in life, God is good, right? And, and you know, we, we fall into the trap of just saying, well, when good things happen, God is good, right? When I get the promotion, we say, God is good, right? I get the promotion or, or uh, get a good report to the doctor. God is good. But in reality, in reality, the Bible teaches When you get fired from your job, God is still good. Right? When you get a bad diagnosis at the doctor, God has not stopped being good. He's still good. Do you understand what's going on? No. Can you interpret the circumstances rightly? Probably not. Are you you hurting? Yes. But God is good and has a purpose in it. And he's somehow going to weave it all together for your ultimate good and his ultimate glory. What a mighty God we serve. He's good. And so remember that. Let me, i got to read this from Charles Spurgeon. Love Charles Spurgeon. He says, when others behave badly to us. Anyone ever had someone behave badly toward you? Raise your hand if you ever had someone behave badly. All right. You ever behave badly towards somebody? Raise your hand. Okay, all right. When others behave badly to us, it should only stir us up the more heartily to give thanks unto the Lord because He is good. 
And when we ourselves are conscious that we are far from being good, we should only the more reverently bless him that he is good. We must never tolerate an instant's unbelief as to the goodness of the Lord. Whatever else may be questioned, this is absolutely certain that Jehovah is good. His dispensations may vary, but his nature is always the same. I like that. Don't for a moment, a moment doubt the goodness of God. Listen, even when people are ugly to you, that name the name of Christ, God's still good. Don't let their behavior reflect upon the God of the Bible. And so, we need to trust Him, no matter the circumstances. Let me give you the next thing. The presence of evil, I'm going to speed up a little bit here. The presence of evil does not diminish God's goodness. Turn over to Romans chapter 8 with me. Romans chapter 8. Let me take a swig of water. This is, going, this is going to be a mouthful, what I'm about to say. All right. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with the longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. That's when the fall happened. Adam and Eve sinned. Sin entered the world and corrupted the created order. It was subjected to futility, not willingly, willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That's God. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Notice that word, corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first roots of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Here's what he's saying. We live in a world that's been cursed by sin, and because we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world, difficult things happen. Like earthquakes and, and hurricanes. We're talking about the, the anniversary of Katrina. Cancer, diabetes. Those kind of things happen because we live in a world that is fallen, a world that's been cursed by sin. And the, the created order is just groaning, waiting for the time when God's going to come back and set it all right. He said, not only the creation, but we ourselves. Not only are we surrounded by fallen creation, we're surrounded by fallen people, aren't we? That do evil things, right? But he says, we're waiting for God to come back and redeem and set everything right. And so the presence of evil in the world, things not being right in the world, does not diminish God's goodness. And this is important because one of the major arguments used by people who who doubt the existence of God is this. If God is all-powerful, we talked about that last week, and God is good, then why is there evil in the world? God is all-powerful, God is good, why is there evil in the world? And that's a pretty good question, isn't it? Because he's all-powerful, he could stop the evil. That's what's implied in the question. And because he's good, he ought to want to stop the evil. That's implied in the question. So if God really exists, and he's all-powerful, and he's, he's omnibenevolent, he's all-good, then why in the world is there still evil in this world? And people use that to question the goodness of the God we serve and love, the God of the Bible. 
Well, theologians have tried to answer this in many ways, and the attempt to answer this question is called a theodicy, if you want that word, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. And the theodicy is an attempt to explain the problem of evil in the world, uh, to give insight uh, that, that God is omnipotent and good, but evil does still exist in our world. So how does that all line up? Because people say, well, if God is all-powerful and God is all-good, why doesn't he just eradicate evil? Right? Now listen to me. If God chose to completely eradicate evil, guess what? We'd all be eradicated. Right? If God's going to wipe all the evil out, we'd be toast. Right? So I don't know if we want to call for God to just eradicate all evil. And don't try to play the game that you're good and other folks are evil. Guess what? We all have corrupt hearts apart from Christ. We've all sinned against the glory of God. We've all fallen short of His glory. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. So don't try to act like you're good and and other people are bad. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. Amen? And so if you want God just to eradicate all evil and wipe it out, well, you better buckle up, buddy, because you're going to get eradicated. I don't think we want God to eradicate all evil. You see, instead of eradication, God opts for redemption. And redemption is so much better. Redemption is God saves us and restores us out of our sin and evil. And he changes us and he makes us new. And in Romans 8, he's saying one day he's going to come back And he's going to take this fallen creation of hurricanes and tornadoes and problems and and challenges. And he's he's going to cast it all away and create a new heavens and a new earth. Make everything brand new. And he's going to bring his children home to heaven where he will make us brand new. Over in Revelation 21 it says, Jesus says, I am making all things new. I am redeeming from the evil a people for my own possession. I am redeeming the created order itself. And redemption is so much better than eradication because in redemption we get to be a part of it. Eradication, we're crispy critters, right? But redemption, we get to know God and be with him forever in heaven. I opt for redemption, not eradication. How about you? See, The amazing fact is this, not how could God allow evil to continue on being all-powerful and all-good. The amazing thing is, how in the world could God love us so much that he would send his son in the midst of this evil and cause his son to take all the evil on himself and pay the punishment for that evil on the cross so that a bunch of sinners like us could believe in him and be forgiven? That's the better question. How could God do that? What kind of love would move God to do that for you and for me? So listen to me. There is evil in the world. And there are things that are happening that are hard to understand. You know, we saw this morning the the, the news broadcaster doing an interview at a water park in Virginia and the cameraman, and and a a man walks up and just shoots them on camera and, and just kills them. It's right there. And you think, what is happening in our nation? And there's so many other things that are just disturbing, right? What's going on in the world? But listen to me. God is good. And he's doing a mighty work of redemption. And when the dust settles on human history and Christ has put down all the evil and made everything right, we will stand in awe and glorify his name, the one who did not eradicate us, but redeemed us. And so... Understand the presence of evil does not 
diminish God's goodness. Matter of fact, over 2 Timothy 3, 9, it says, God, the reason God hasn't come back yet to set everything right is because he's patient. He, he's not willing for any to perish, but he wants all to come to repentance. So every day that Christ doesn't return to set everything right, he's giving sinners more time to be saved. He's patient. Here's the next thing about God's goodness I want you to see. We should reflect God's character to others by doing good. If God is good, we should imitate Him, and we should try to do good to others. Turn over to Galatians chapter 6. This verse right here is going to encourage you. Somebody came tonight that needed to hear the verses I'm about to read. Okay, Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good. See that word? Let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The reason that's important, because there may be someone here tonight, or maybe many someone's here tonight, and you are growing weary of doing the right thing. You're growing weary of serving Jesus Weary of, of, of helping others, you're, you're growing weary. And the Bible says, do good. Don't grow weary in doing good. Let us do good to everyone, especially to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So here's the principle. God is good. And because God is good, he wants his people to reflect that goodness by doing good for others. Right? So we get to be God's lights in the world. We get to show people just a a, a glimpse of his goodness as his people do good for those around them. And so we should reflect God's character to others by doing good. And if someone asks you, why are you helping me? Why Why do you care about me? Why are you blessing me? You can say, because God is good. You can point them to the one who leads the way in goodness. So we should reflect God's character to others by doing good. And here's the last thing, and we're going to close down. I'll take some questions here in a moment. If you have a question, and we'll pray. But here's the last thing I want to give you. And this is important. In light of God's goodness, we should invite people to experience our good God. Look over in Psalm 34. Love this verse. You've heard it before, but I want you to let your eyes fall on it. Psalm 34. Psalm 34, verse 8. This is a call to those who have not experienced God's goodness. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Blessed is the man who runs to Him for salvation is what that means. And so there's a call here in this psalm. Listen, I've tasted and seen that God is good. Won't you come? And taste and see if God is good. The, the, the word taste there speaks of, a, of personal experience, right? I mean, you can say all the day long, boy, filet mignon is wonderful. F- filet mignon is great. Filet mignon is one of the best cuts of meat out there. Filet mignon is just wonderful, wonderful steak. And you can say that all day long, but when you taste it, it's a whole different story, isn't it? I've tasted filet mignon. I know filet mignon is good, right? There's a big difference between knowing about something and actually knowing something. So when he says, come and taste to see the Lord is good, he's saying, hey, come and personally experience for yourself the goodness of God the same way that I have. Now, turn over to to Nahum. We mentioned minor prophets earlier. Look over in the book of Nahum. 
The book of Nahum is an interesting book because it is a, uh, it's a sequel to uh, Jonah. In Jonah, God sent, sends the prophet Jonah to preach salvation to the city of Nineveh. They repent. They turn to God. And so it ends on a high note and for the Ninevites. Joseph kind of throws a pity I mean, Jonah throws a pity party. But anyway, uh, the Ninevites are saved. There's a great revival in Nineveh because Joseph go, uh, Jonah goes and preaches to them the one true God. But in Nahum, the sequel to Jonah... The Ninevites turn their backs to God once again, and they chase after other gods. And look what it says in Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. Uh, the world and all who dwell in it, who can stand before his indignation, who can endure the heat of his anger. His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are broken into pieces by him. So this message to the Ninevites is this. Listen, you should not turn your back to God. Because one day, if you die in that condition, you will experience his everlasting wrath against your sin. So he's speaking here of a God of, uh, to put it bluntly, hellfire and brimstone. That's what he's saying here. I, I, I kind of chuckle sometimes when I, talk, I hear somebody say, well, well, you know, I grew up here as a preacher, and he, was, he just preached hellfire and brimstone. Well, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. And can people, you know, emphasize some things to the exclusion of others? Yes, but understand hellfire and brimstone is in the Bible. That if you do not receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will experience his wrath forever in that awful place called hell. We need to talk about it some, right? But look at the next verse. He's speaking of God's wrath against sin and against sinners and pagan idolaters. But then in verse 7, here's his evangelism. The Lord is what? Good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. I love that. He said, listen, God will judge you if you don't turn to him. But understand that if you do turn to him, he's good. You'll experience him in his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his love. And he will be a stronghold in your life and a refuge in your life. And he'll watch over you in your life. Don't experience him as a God of wrath when you can experience him as a God who is good. I love that. That's good evangelism, isn't it? Good evangelism. Tell folks the truth. That if you turn your back on God, you'll experience his wrath and punishment. But you don't have to experience that. You can experience him because he is good in a way that saves your soul. I like that. So we should invite people to experience our good God. We really should. When we um, are sharing our faith with someone, it's not just that, you know, I'm a Christian, I go to church. It's, hey, Jesus, because of what he did on the cross and by rising from the dead, Jesus has saved my soul. He's forgiven me of all my sin. And now, because of that, I have a relationship with God, and I experience his goodness in manifold ways. I get to know God. I get God. I get to know him in a personal way. I can call him Father now. I know I'm going to heaven. I'll be with him forever then. It's awesome. 
It's not just, hey, sign up for my religious ritual. It's not just, hey, be a church member or be a part of a certain denomination. It's, hey, I get God in a personal way when I turn to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And that's good. We should say to a lost and dying and hurting and confused world, taste and see the Lord is good. That should be our message. And so we should invite people to experience our Good God. And so I hope, hope this week, as you think about this message, I hope you'll go through life and I hope you'll have eyes to just see God's goodness in every area of your life, every aspect of your life, every, every corner of your life. God is good. And I hope you'll thank Him for it and I hope you'll praise Him for it. And I hope you'll live in such a way to say, hey, if you've never tasted and seen the goodness of God, would you come and taste that goodness with me? He is Good.